Welcome to the Real Education Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Bowles, and on this show, I interview remarkable people who think way outside the box in education. To listen to more episodes, learn more about my guests, or become a patron of this ad and sponsor-free show, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. You can also email me at yours truly at blakebowles.com. Now, on to the show. My guest today is William Derezowitz, author of Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life, and former Yale University English professor. William, or Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Blake. Your book came out late in 2014, and it generated uh, a lot of stir and a lot of controversy. Can you give us the, the bird's eye view of what it's about? Sure. Um, it's about the way the educational system that we've con- constructed um, misshapes its students, um, and especially the ones who I saw as a professor at Yale and a graduate instructor at Columbia, the ones who end up at the most selective colleges. But certainly, I think many students beyond that. Um, it's all there in the title, which is a phrase that came out of the mouth of one of my students at Yale, excellent sheep. Um, she said, are you saying that we're all like excellent sheep? It was this dawning moment of self-recognition. And I think it puts it really well. They're excellent because what school increasingly involves now is um, a a constant, intensive focus on developing uh, students' ability to do the things that adults want them to do, which is what has come to be called excellence getting A's on all their tests, checking all the boxes, jumping through all the hoops, the music, the sports, the service work, the the other extracurriculars, the travel, the languages, everything that you need to do to get on your resume, to get into the college of your dreams or of your parents' dreams. So these kids are great at being students. But being a student is not the same thing as thinking. It's not the same thing as being intellectually curious. And it certainly isn't the same thing as having a sense of purpose, which means a sense of inner direction. And that's the sheep part. Um, So many students, I mean, this is really how the book started. So many students would come to me and say, I don't know what I want to do. Because they've only been doing what the grownups have told them to do. So either they come to the end of the hoops and they're at a loss, or more commonly, and I think more sadly, they jump through the next hoop that is being held up. I mean, there will be hoops that are held up to you, usually by prestigious employers like banks and consulting firms or prestigious graduate programs. But but then they do it without a sense of wanting to do it. Just like, it's the next thing. This is what I'm supposed to do. And that creates an enormous amount of unhappiness, uh, which which we can talk about. Your book is one of my favorite education books in recent history, maybe of all time, because you make such a strong case for building self-knowledge and self-directedness, really becoming a self-directed learner. And you make you have obviously very informed opinions about how a four-year liberal arts, especially an unspecialized liberal arts college education, can contribute to that. And it's it's almost like a 
a blueprint or a recipe book for not becoming uh, a sheep and not just becoming uh, a pawn or, or a hack of, of what, um, not, not just your parents who, you know, typically have a lot of investment in you, but what these other shady forces, this other uh, world of, of adult life wants you to become. Yeah. Um, so what has the reaction to your book been? You know, it's really been all over the place. I mean, when the book came out at the end of last summer and actually a, a month before that, there was an excerpt that was published very prominently in the, Republic, in the New Republic that got a lot of attention. So at that point, there were, there were a lot of public responses, um, often from people who were in one way or another associated with the kinds of institutions that I really call out by name, Ivy League institutions and equivalent places like Stanford and Duke. And needless to say, a lot of it was angry and wounded and defensive and hostile and very personal, calling my motives uh, into question and so forth. But at the same time, and continually since then, I mean, almost literally every day, I get emails from people saying, you know, thank you for helping me recognize what's been wrong with my education. Thank you for strengthening me in my determination to uh, be a different kind of parent or live a different kind of life. Um, and there's, I mean, also so, some of the public, some of the public responses also, I think, supportive. I think it tended to come from people who weren't identified with the institutions, who were like the reviewer in the New York Times, who's not an Ivy League professor, or uh, people writing from the perspective of parents, someone like Peggy Orenstein, who's written books about parenting. Um, you know, I hear from people who, like you, who are interested in a different kind of educational path, whether they're a, starting a different kind of high school or a different kind of college, or they're associated with some kind of educational program that's not in any kind of um, traditional framework. So I think, you know, um, I think there's been an actually kind of an interesting split because I think people who really are um, close to this problem, who really understand in a visceral way what I'm talking about, because they're students who went through it, because they're parents who've seen their kids go through it, because they're teachers at these institutions, whether it's high schools or colleges, who see what's happening to their students, they totally get it. And the kind of manage, the managerial class of selective college institutions tends to have a very negative view of the book. But to me, you know, that just means that I'm on the right track. <laughs> yeah. And uh, let's, let's talk about your track. Uh, we know that you're a former Yale professor, but what's yeah. the rest of your story? And how did you get to this point of becoming a, a very prominent critic of Ivy League institutions. Oh my God! Well, I don't. I don't want to bore you with the whole story. It's 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 kind of a winding path, and that's really part of the point. I mean, writing the book really helped me self reflect on how much of my own story is part of the story that I'm writing about. I mean, I, I knew that there. I, I knew what my story was, but I didn't quite realize how much. So so for instance, my dad. Uh, was an immigrant. He was a science professor. He meant well, but he had a very narrow understanding of what his children should do, you know, go to college, study science, become a doctor. So I majored in science and it was a big mistake for me. And I realized about halfway through college that it was a big mistake, but I really had no support. I had no mentorship. I had no support from my parents for choosing a different path. So I kind of floundered after college um, for for a few years I almost went to law school, which was the sort of 1985 equivalent of 
going to banking, going to consultancy. And I pulled back at the last minute because I realized I just didn't want to go to law school or be a lawyer. But it meant, I mean, the early 20s were hard for me. And um, it was only once I finally let myself recognize that if I didn't study English lit, um, if I didn't give myself the second chance that I should have given myself the first chance of in college, that I was never going to be happy. And I was lucky enough to get into a PhD program. I was rejected for most of them because I hadn't been an English major, but I was lucky enough to get into one. And, you know, I was, I, I was finally happy. It was like, seriously, it was like my 18th year in school. And it was the first time I really enjoyed going to school. And the first time I really tried as hard as I could because I finally loved what I was doing, cared about what I was doing. It just felt natural. It felt right. Now, only um, once you got into the English PhD program, are you really saying that high school and and undergrad uh, right. had all been just, I mean, I had, was no, it un- listen, unpleasant I, I, or meaningless or? Yeah. I mean, listen, I had individual teachers and professors who were great. They tended to be literature professors. Maybe they should have told me something. Um, I started that biopsych major enthusiastic, but also it just, the truth is even from the beginning, it kind of felt like drudgery. I thought I would be a scientist, but I know, listen, it may sound hard to believe, but there are hundreds of thousands of kids out there who are having the same experience right now. Like, why am I doing this? Like, I just have to do this. Listen, I, I, I did actually, I forgot that two of my high school teachers were wonderful bio teachers, and that made a big difference. They were great. And that, you know, I loved biology at that point. But once I got to college and it was big lectures and totally remote professors, I mean, I... You know, this biopsych major in college, it was a very new major. It's now probably what they'd call cognitive psych. There were mm-hmm. maybe five of us a year. There was one professor whose area it was. He was my major advisor. I took two classes with him, including my capstone seminar. And the guy literally never said a word to me outside of the context of a classroom exchange. Like there was no personal contact. He had no interest. He was a young professor who was building his career. So there was no mentorship there was no personal relationship it was really impersonal and and in the meantime you know i'd be sitting there like in in freshman calculus reading a novel under my desk taking as many opportunities as i could to you rebel it. it wasn't that i was a rebel it's that i was bored i mean i think a lot of people yeah. were bored you know uh, especially because you know people were repeating calc or we it was a he was a terrible teacher as unfortunately a lot of math and science teachers are um, and I mean, listen, I don't mean to indict them. I think it has to do with the field, the profession. Um, but he was a terrible teacher. So I think a lot of people were bored. Um, but the point was, the answer was right in front of me, but I couldn't see it because no one had ever given me the idea that I was allowed to study English lit. I had a comp, I had a comp teacher, freshman comp teacher, first semester, who I... I love the class, which is crazy. Nobody likes freshman comp. I did really well in it. Um, he would talk to me outside of class, but he he never encouraged me to pursue my interests. He was like he was cynical and jaded at a very, I think, in an, an inappropriate way. He was about twenty four at that point, and he kind of had this pose of like, ah, "Don't do it, kid. It's a racket," you know. <laughs> um, yeah, and and listen, I I really didn't have anyone to help me find my way. There was so one, had, yeah. There, there was a dearth of mentorship and, and anyone taking the time to get to know you beyond 
your performance in the classroom. Is that a good summary? Yeah, I mean, I would say I did have mentorship for reasons that I don't think would necessarily be relevant to go into. I did, a, I mean, the less I was interested in my classes, the more I did outside of not only classes, but outside of college. And I had mentorship, other activities, mentorship in that context. And actually, there was one person I was going to say, he was only a few years older than me. I think he was wise before his time. And when I was agonizing the year after college about whether to go to law school, he said, you know, you can't know what you're going to want to do three years from now because you're going to be a different person by then. So mm-hmm. all you can think about is what you want to do now. And that was a key advice that saved me from going to law school. And again, it's not that being going to law school or being a lawyer is bad, right? It's just about what's right for you and why Making you... Making an informed choice or an uninformed choice. Yes. As lo- yes. And especially if you understand that in that word informed, there's a whole universe, mm-hmm. right? It's not just being informed about the field, although I see an enormous uh, dearth of that also among college students. You know, making choices based on rumors and misinformation and absence of information. But, but as you said earlier, it's about being informed about yourself. Why are you doing this? So, um, listen, long story short, I became a professor. I always cared about teaching a lot. So I paid attention to my students, yada, yada, yada. The point is, that um, a lot of my motivation to write the book came from my sense that I had not gotten any guidance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was only once I started to write the book that I realized that, that so much of my story was similar to students now. But the one thing I did, I had known ever since then was that I hadn't gotten any guidance and, and no one had talked about, had, had, helped, had even helped me understand what I should be thinking about. And that... You know, students need that, and and I don't think a lot of them are getting it. Let's dive into the content of the book, because there's so much I want to talk about here. Uh, You start by discussing uh, the family upbringing component, the parenting component of the the production of of an excellent sheep. And what I love is that you managed, I haven't seen anyone do this yet, you managed to find the, the common ground and, and skewer equally uh, <laughs> the concepts of helicopter parenting, sort of like right. the tiger mom philosophy, right. and then also the idea of overindulgent parenting, the parent who lets uh, his child run wild in the supermarket or, or just says right. yes and never says no. Right. Uh, what is the common uh, ground between these two uh, parenting styles? Right, right. I think that they, the common ground is overprotection. Right. It's about making the world safe for your kids. Um, you know, Tiger Mom thinks that if you just control everything and do everything right every moment and never stop working, that you will achieve success and therefore happiness and that the world can be made predictable. Uh, the overindulgent parent wants to protect, you know, Tiger Mom obviously isn't worried about her child's feelings. I mean, if we're talking about that woman, you know, Amy Cho in particular, she talks about that. And the overindulgent parent is terribly worried about their child's feelings. But again, it's about protecting them from any kind of pain, any kind of setback, any kind of hardship. And ultimately, you know, I think they come from the same place. It's about making sure that everything's going to be fine, never having to... um, um, never having to expose your child to risk, right? I mean... The helicopter parent may sort of impose their own regime regime of hardship, but there's no risk. And it's the same with the, you know, with the other kind, right? Um, no negativity. Um, 
They're both ultimately, I think, about over about over identification, right? The child, the parent is over identified with the child, and I, I th- definitely see that with the 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 tiger mom. What about the the over indulgent parent? Listen, How is think, that a yeah, form I mean, of identification? I think, I think it's an over identification. I think you know those kinds of parents. This is like you you know you want to be friends with your kids. You want your kid to kind of have the childhood, the ideal, what you think the ideal childhood is. Maybe mm-hmm. you, you didn't have it or you did have it. So I think it's a projection onto the child of the desire to remain a child on the part of the parent. This fantasy of, of, of absolute freedom and creativity that's really just a fantasy of childhood. It's only half of what childhood needs to be. Um, so, th- so I, yeah, I think it's over-identification in that sense. I do. Uh, I mean, did I make that clear? It's kind of a wish fulfillment through your through your kid, right? Yeah, and yeah. you make it extremely clear in the book, and yeah. you also have uh, this great line uh, about both of these parenting styles are essentially ways of treating children as if they can't do anything for themselves. Uh, although, I guess I still don't see that that seems more applicable to the, the tiger mom one, because if you are the overindulgent parent, aren't you letting them do things for themselves? Or, or how about no. this? A different question. What would a parenting style look like that does give uh, students the autonomy, independence, and the chance to build self-knowledge and self-direction if it's not one of those two? Yeah. I mean, let me but let me just answer both questions. Uh, sure. you, you gave you know, the overindulgent parent, you said, like, let the kids run, run wild in the supermarket. It sounds like they can just do whatever they want. But I mean, a big, big part of that is doing stuff for them, right? Like the the, mm. the the example, I think I think the image I give for that is like tying your kid's shoelaces when they're eight years old, right? So rushing in and taking care of whatever problem the kid has because you can't bear to see them struggle, to be frustrated, to be angry, to be upset. That's the thing. So you solve all the problems for them. And the tiger mother's doing the same thing. I mean, you know, they're... They, they're they're you know making them do their work. They're not doing it for them, but they are uh, eliminating any choices. Right? They're telling them exactly what to do. Yes. So, and I think that that answers your question. Um, and I mean, I don't, I don't mind plugging also a book that is about to come out that you probably are aware of, which is it's called How to Raise an Adult by Julie Lithcott Hames. She um, she is a, a former freshman dean at Stanford, and basically she says what I'm about to say which is, you know, the way to raise them, you know, what you really want as a parent is not your kid to get into the best college they can get into. That's not the grade of being a parent. That's not the final exam. The final exam is creating an autonomous adult. And I'm not a parenting expert. I'm not even a parent, but it seems to me obvious. (laughs) Me neither. Okay. But it seems to me obvious that the way to do that is to give them age appropriate, um, you know, um, areas of autonomy. Let them make choices, which also means let them make mistakes. Tiger mom doesn't want any mistakes because the kid has to be perfect. The overindulgent parent doesn't want mistakes because they don't want their children to suffer for having made mistakes. Mm-hmm. So they do it for them. And you need to let kids fall down and get up again. And again, I mean, it, you know, age appropriate, whatever that means when you're five, whatever that means when you're 15. You know, don't. Uh, I'm not saying let them take inappropriate risks, but you have to let them take risks. 
Yeah, and what you said earlier, the common ground between them was that neither parent lets their child solve their own problems. And so it sounds like the antithesis of that is let your kids solve their own problems, let them struggle with them. You know, don't be completely absent from their lives, uh, but don't... Don't infantilize them past the you know the point right. of childhood. And, and uh, can I can I just say one thing? Yeah. Because you said don't be absent. This is one of the most striking things. I, you, as you know, I mentioned this in the book. I'm drawing on the writings of Madeline Levine, who's a wonderful adolescent psychologist and author, The Price of Privilege, and other books. And she talks about how studies show that high achieving affluent kids feel less connected to their parents, less connected than any other group of kids in this country, including the poorest. So that's the paradox of the helicopter, is that the communication only goes in one direction. And the parent thinks that they're present because they're constantly giving direction. But there's nothing, there's no communication happening from the child to the parent. And so parents feel, I'm sorry, kids feel like, and I think this is a quote pretty much from Madeline Levine's book, that, um, their parents are everywhere and nowhere at the same time. So, so there's a kind Ooh. of, a, right? So there's, so there's a kind of absence that there too. Let's move on to the main thrust of your book, which I see as defining what an education means. Yeah. The subtitle of your book claims that there's a miseducation going on. Right. Um, a, a few short quotes. You say that everybody wants their child to get an education, but nobody wants them to get an education education. And another one that I really liked was a real education sends you into the world bearing questions, not resumes. Right. Uh, do you have a nutshell definition now for what a real education is, what it, what it does to you, what you take away from it? Yeah. I think a real education, this, this may sound wishy-washy, a real education helps you form an adult self. And an adult self is something uh, is... It's funny. I don't have I don't have a business card definition, and I should. <laughs> um, uh, a real education is something that helps you um, figure out what's important to you, right? It helps you um, choose your own values and your own direction. That's to me what it means to have a strong self, right? Something that's that can push back when the world pushes against you. Right. So we fill kids with all of our expectations and all of our values and, and our definition of success and how to achieve it. And, you know, they often end up with, and again, Madeline Levine and, and my own experience talking to students, like there's, there's nothing inside, like who am I and who do I want? So really, I think, I think we're, we're, we're approaching a definition here. Real education so when you say- helps you figure out who you are. And, and I want us to understand that who you are is not something that you, you know, that's sort of pre, that you're born with that you have to quote unquote discover. It's something that you build over the course of a life, really. So it, it helps you discover what's inside and also become something that you couldn't have predicted um, before. Um, and when you, in that previous quote, when you said nobody wants them to get an education, education, that sounds to me like uh, an education that could threaten, uh, from a parent's perspective, their their values or their vision for what you are going to become or what profession you will go into in the world. Um, and giving you a, a real self, something that does push back. 
Yeah, listen, yes, I think you said that very well. And to my embarrassment, you said it better than I had. Um, it's not about getting from point A to point B. It's about starting at point A and ending up somewhere that no one, including yourself, could have predicted. And yes, I think this is very threatening to parents. I remember, you know, what this was like with my dad. Um, he he was afraid of me be of my education knocking me off the course that my education was supposed to bring me towards, which was a very narrow definition of success. Because a real education opens things up. It opens you up. And, you know, yeah, you don't, you don't know where it's going to go. And this is why it's risky. And it's also why it's exhilarating and fun and vital and makes you feel alive and can lead you to do wonderful things in the world. You also discuss something you call a moral education, and you argue that this is something very deficient from a, a lot of college graduates' lives. Uh, can you define that? Yeah, first? yeah. It's very important that I might not be misunderstood here. I'm not talking about whether people that, like are good people and whether they have values that I might approve of and whether they're following some kind of Judeo-Christian or other code. Moral here is, is meant in a different sense. And it just means having to do with making choices in the widest sense, right? A moral action is any action, any action that involves a choice. And it may not be a choice that we can put on a scale of good to bad. It, it, the, really, the choice I'm talking about are, like, what do I want to do with my life? And that's not necessarily good or bad, I mean, unless you want to become a, you know, a criminal. Um, and, and so, I mean, really, it's what we've already been saying. It's about becoming autonomous, meaning you can make your own choices. You can make your own choices uh, in independence of, and if need be, in, in opposition to what your parents want from you. And like you said before, it's not just your parents. You know, listen, I've talked to a lot of young people who feel supported by their parents, but they'll say to me, it doesn't matter if your parents aren't crazy because everybody else's parents are crazy. So the app <laughs> in the school is crazy or they get to college and they find that, you know, instead of this wonderful intellectual playground, um, everyone is sort of in pre-professional mode from the moment they get there and they're talking about the most lucrative majors and the most lucrative careers. And so their peers are pushing them in a certain direction. So you have to be able to push back. That's the point of having an education. Not not react, not be automatically uh, against something, but to to have a, a core defined set of beliefs and, and morals and, and yeah, well, ideas about yourself and the world. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be fixed. I mean, I think if, if anything, you know, especially for your first few decades of life or your first few decades of adulthood, rather, it shouldn't be fixed. You should be taking in new information. But how do you do this, right? First of all, you become, you learn to be skeptical. You learn, you, first you learn to be aware, right? You learn to be aware of the values, the assumptions, the categories, the ways of thinking that you got to your 18th birthday with. Then you learn how to question them, right? Uh, rationally, right? How to look at them from all different sides and different points of view and ask yourself whether you believe them or not. Then you learn how to imagine your own you know, way in the world, your own set of beliefs. And finally, you know, all this also should be helping, does help, I think, build that self 
that that has a center that has strength like you know what's inside you you know who you are mm-hmm. you know where your parents stop or your peers stop and you start and i think all of that helps you become the last thing you need to be which is courageous because if you're going to start saying things that other people disagree with and making choices that make other people uncomfortable and they can make people very uncomfortable that's why that's why everyone has to you know when when everyone has to like give english majors a hard time because it makes them uncomfortable to hear that someone is studying something just because they love it. So they have to say, what are you going to do with that? Or you're really going for the big bucks. They have to kind of, you know, beat you down because it makes them uncomfortable. And in the face of that, you have to have the courage to say, no, this is what I want. And I don't care what other people think I should be doing. In the book, you what I took away from the book is that you see the mechanism for gaining this sort of education, the one you just described, as going to a four-year liberal arts college that focuses on small group semin- seminars and offers a lot of face time with professors. Um, I, I know you, you say it over and over again that you know there's no like one type of college that's right for everyone, but you uh, you put in the most meaningful plug for that sort of college education. Um, that I've ever read. And t- tell us why that sort of education is superior to other, uh, you believe might be superior to other forms of college education, like a highly technical education, or maybe right. just um, a, a two-year community college experience. Right. Well, listen, first of all, um, different things are going to be right for different people. And in this environment, we can't ignore the fact of money, of college costs, and not everyone's going to be able to afford this. And that sucks. I think we should have a society where everyone can go and not worry about it if they want to and they're capable of doing the work. But I want to be clear that this is not um, an argument against technical education. It's an argument that says technical education is not the only kind of education you should get. Um, We have a system that allows you to major in one thing and take most of your courses in other things that recognizes that college needs to have several different purposes. And we can do this all, we can do these, we can do them all if we do them right. And one of them absolutely has to do with vocational preparation or technical preparation, developing the rudiments of expertise in one field or another. But there's, all this, there's also this other side. And it, it, it enhances the technical aspect too, because it turns you into a flexible, a uh, strong thinker who can continue to learn, you know, on the job too, for the purposes of a career to continue well, uh, to self-educate. Uh, to briefly illustrate that point, my my dad was an English major, and after having a uh, doing lots of different things in his twenties, uh, eventually decided to start a food processing company and and bottled uh, liquid, you know, salad dressings, and that's what he did for the rest of his his life, and he. <laughs> And he ran the business really well. Okay. So, but I want to be clear about this. Okay. I mean, I love that story, but I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying that everyone has to be an English major or a humanities major. And in fact, some of the best technical colleges in the country, like Harvey Mudd or Olin, uh, and in not, and not just in the country, like the Indian Institutes of Tech, Tech, Technology, are recognizing the value of incorporating more and more social science and humanities into their curricula. When we speak of liberal arts, we are including the sciences. They don't exclude the sciences. They do exclude vocational fields where you study a set of facts or a set of procedures, and that's all you learn. And you can take that and you can go out into the world and be a nurse or be a dental technician or be an engineer and have that first job much more easily 
than an English major. But what happens 10 years later when everything you learn in college is now obsolete because the technology, the science has moved on, and you haven't learned the means to continually re-educate yourself? Then you're going to be in trouble. So to me, the core, whether it's science, social science, or humanities, and I think it's good for people in college to get an exposure to all of them, is that you're learning not facts, but you're learning how facts are created. You're basically learning how to make arguments. You're learning how to debate, how to think, how to analyze other people's arguments, how to evaluate their claims, and not merely accept their claims. This is what we know. No, how do we know it? How is this knowledge created? What kinds of holes may, may there be? Or what kinds of questions does this information raise? Right? That's, that's what a college classroom should do. And that's also why I think it needs to be seminar-based intensive instruction. Whether it's English or physics, you want to sit there with a small group of people and hash things out because it's not just about absorbing information, right? This it's is why you're a, a critic of MOOCs, massive yes. online courses. You're, I assume you're a critic of super giant lectures uh, unless you, they're accompanied by sections that have that more intimate intellectual environment. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think large lectures are any better than MOOCs. Um, and in fact, I think the MOOCs have gotten a large purchase because so much of education below the most selective level at your typical state university public institution is just, you know, this mass production, this kind of, you know, you know, huge lectures with no sections. But that's, yeah, that's not, that's not education to me. It's a transfer of information transfer or an, of, an attempted transfer. An attempt to transfer information. Uh, a number of the listeners on the show uh, are going to be people who probably went to college, but are also probably skeptical of uh, the, the need, the, the absolute need for a college education for their own kids or, or other people who are young. And so do you think there's any way that you can get a similar quality of experience, uh, again, talking about this uh, intimate seminar style, uh, hashing it out, you know, forcing you to develop your arguments, forcing you to, to learn how to push back. Um, can that happen outside of a, a college environment? That's a good question. Um, let me say first that it happens rarely enough within a college environment. Ooh, I mean, burnt, burnt. Now, listen, it's true. And, and the more time I think about this and the more time I spend in higher education, the more I realize, listen, college is, is rarely the thing that I think it should be. Um, and if people are getting, are starting to get fed up with it, I understand that. And on top of everything else, it costs a hell of a lot of money. I know the, uh, the unschooling movement is relatively young. So it's not fair. And, and my experience is relatively limited. So it's not entirely fair for me to say this. I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't have a college education, who I think is a really rigorous thinker. I haven't. They may exist. I'm sure they must exist. But um, as flawed uh, an instrument as college is now, it is hard for me to imagine. Listen, I myself have had have had um, informal education experiences in high school, especially um, that were wonderful. But you know. College is a lot. I mean, you got to take, you know, more than 30 classes, four years. It's a very important time in someone's cognitive development. You're surrounded by peers who hopefully have some 
intellectual interests, although that is also open to question. But maybe you can find a group that does. So it's a very intensive, immersive, long-lasting experience. And to say, well, you can get this, you know, you can have something like it, but, but how sustained is it going to be? That's, that's the question I have, right? Is it sustained yeah, and, enough and, to really replace a college experience? And my own experience being a little bit deeper in the unschooling world has, has led me to meet many deep thinkers. They're not published, uh, you know, New York Times authors or necessarily, you know, running large companies, but uh, many deep thinkers who have not had a, a complete or any college experience. Um, but I, I want to go on and, and, and see where you're coming from and, um, and tell me, let's keep going on why college, even though it's so flawed, as you've identified, is this you consider it a very irreplaceable experience and, and it's, it would be hard to find uh, an equivalent somewhere else. Well, I mean, again, I, I, I don't want to go so far as to say irreplaceable. And I take the last point you made that, that, you know, lots of people and, and I, and I hear that. And thank you for saying that. Um, I guess I wonder, you know, I mean, I think maybe I'm selling young people short. I think that for the rare young person, you know, all you need is a library card. Um, is it, you know, is it going to work for most kids? I mean, maybe if they've had a kind of unschooling experience earlier, it would work. And I, that listen, has been I my think, experience. Yeah, the right. ones who do have more of an early experience in being a highly self-directed learner and right. being supported in that, and especially being part of a community right. of other people who right. do that. Right. Um, Yes. Right. I mean, I think think you're helping me kind of as we're talking, like, what are the essential things? You want a community of other learners. You want, you want, I mean, college also offers resources to do all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, I have mixed feelings about it, but it's true. Um, And then you want professors or the equivalent of professors. You want teachers who know what they're doing, who know the material and who have the time and the resources to put you through your paces. Yeah, and they're going to be dedicated to your development. Yeah. You know, you know, even if an average college professor has to be dedicated to a few hundred different kids' development. Oh, um, no, no, no. The average college professor has to be dedicated to their career. See, this is one of the uh, biggest problems, is that college professors are, are incentivized for their research. One of the reasons I'm not a college professor anymore, this was not a choice of mine. I wasn't able to find my next job. And part of the reason is because I spent too much time on my teaching and not enough time publishing. It's a big problem. Um, so look, if you can replicate those things, community resources and instructors, then, then there's no reason that a college can't be replaceable. But that may be a big if. I mean, you know, college is expensive. Some of the, you know, some of the, there are good reasons why college is expensive. I mean, there are bad reasons too. But, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of FaceTime. That costs money. Yeah. 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 That's yeah, right. I'm, I'm with you. Let's keep moving on to something new, Bill. You um, argue for taking time off before college, uh, for taking time off during college, and then also taking time off, um, call it a gap year, call it something else, after college. And by time off, I'm assuming this means away from intensive academic studies and more in the mode of like figuring out yourself and, and being in that messy in between zone. Right. Um, right. Why don't more kids, the gap year is such a common sense idea. Why don't more kids do it? 
Well, actually, as I understand it, more and more kids are doing it. Um, they are. Increasing trend, but still very low numbers. It's still low numbers. And I would also say this. I mean, without knowing... I'm actually a, sort of involved in a gap year here in Portland, so I have a little bit of knowledge of that world. Um, I feel like a lot of them aren't really gap years. I feel like a lot of them are just more resume building, right? Like a lot of them will say, take a year on, you know, not take a year off. And we're going to go and we're going to, you know, run around the world and, you know, like what global citizen year or whatever it is. Um, I, th- I feel like it's still too structured too oriented towards skill building, too oriented towards resume building. Why more students don't do it? I mean, there may be financial issues. There may be, there may be a fear on the part of the student or of the parent of um, getting off the track or of being at that young age, relatively young age, in an unstructured environment. Um, where they just don't see the value of it. I mean, they want to hurry up and get their credential and get on with things. Those are my guesses. Yeah. Uh, here's an easy question for you. In the, the time that you've been discussing this book and the research you did for it, have you stumbled upon any colleges that you might call an alternative college or whatever, even a mainstream college right. that really blew you away in terms of uh, how they're doing education differently, how it, it fits more, perhaps the vision you lay out in the book, right. something that really, you know, got your attention. Yeah. Yeah. I would say two of them and they probably won't be surprising to you. I had the great uh, privilege recently of visiting Deep Springs College. Um, you know all about Deep Springs, right? Yeah. Tell the listeners the basics. Yeah. Well, it's so different in almost every way from any other college. Um they they take fifteen students a year. As of now, it's all boys, but they're trying to they're going to be going coed soon. Um, they're off in a remote part of the eastern uh, east of the Sierras in Central California, hours away from anything else. Um, the college is free because it's also a ranch that the students run with relatively little adult help, as they also run the college with relatively little adult help. But it's tiny, and they and they they also have a rigorous academic program. It's also only two years. You you don't get any kind of piece of paper at the end. Most of them go on to colleges afterwards. So it's an incredible place. It's a very tiny place. It runs on a shoestring. It has none of the resources of a normal college. Um, but it, you know, it's not exactly an option for most people, uh, and it's not exactly scalable. Although. As I understand it, there are people who want to start colleges in the Deep Springs mode. Um, the other one is Reed College in Portland, which um, I'd heard good things about for a long time. And now that I live in Portland, I've, I've had a chance to visit. And they provide a really, it's re- really rigorous education. I mean, really intellectually serious. I had to explain to them, like, I was telling kids there, like, yeah, you know, at the Ivy League, these kids are busy all the time. And they said, well, we're busy all the time. But but I said, yeah, but you're busy all the time studying. <laughs> and they're busy all the time doing everything <laughs> but studying. And I sat in on a class, and it was, you know, far more uh, rigorous, sophisticated, intense than any Ivy League class I'd ever seen, including the ones I taught myself. Um, the college doesn't cooperate with U.S. News. 
Uh, it's a college that could probably be ranked in the top 10 of liberal arts colleges, but they don't send their numbers to U.S. News, so they're ranked something like 75th. Very honorable. It's very honorable, and, and it costs them a lot of money because those rankings in various ways are associated with money. Um, and, they, and, another, and yet another cool thing about it is that while they do give their students grades, it's not like Hampshire or Santa Cruz used to be, they don't tell them their grades. Wait so, a sec. Wait a sec. Explain that. Yeah. I did this this semester when I was teaching at Scripps. Uh, student hands in a paper. Professor comments on the paper. Assigns a grade. Writes it in her grading book. But doesn't put it on the paper. Hands the paper back. So you do that. And the student is focused on what you've said about their work. Not the grade you've given them. Mm, I like it. Yeah. And as a result... Students there told me, you know, I'm not even sure what my GPA is. Like, like at the end of the semester, when the grades have been submitted, they can go and look at their grades. And I think they do. But they don't obsess about their grades. They're not constantly thinking about their grades. They may not even know what their GPA is. Whereas, you know, you could stop a kid at, you know, Penn, and they'll tell you their GPA to five significant figures. And, and one, one of the many results is that grade inflation is uh, essentially doesn't exist there. You know, their grades are like a whole grade lower than, than comparable schools, their average grade. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, last topic or two. Um, you spend a good amount of time talking about the, how the high school experience is really what's feeding into the, the college experience. And, of course, we can keep going down the line to the middle school and the elementary school experience. But high school seems like a really... Uh, formative time because that is the uh, the ostensible college preparatory years. Um, do you have any ideas for doing high school differently and how that could then kind of trickle into a, a reformed version of higher education that you think would be better? I have to say, I think you've gotten it backwards. Because Ooh, okay, um, because I, um, it's not it's not the high school that's causing the college; it's the reverse, right? I mean, I think everything that happens before college happens because of the college admissions process. Because the college degree is the, the highly valued signal well, it's in not society, just because not the, college the high school diploma. Is, yes, because, the, because it's all heading towards the college degree, but the college admissions process, that's the thing. The college admissions process, as it's evolved in this kind of haphazard and ultimately kind of crazy way, more and more extracurriculars, more and more APs, you know, blah, 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 that's first it first restructured high school and then you know sort of has been working its way backwards because if you want to take eight APs when you're a senior in high school you need to start accelerating when you're in seventh grade you know and then maybe you need to really start worrying about this in third grade or first grade I, I really I mean I think it's quite clear that that's what's created the system all right you're you're convincing me so how would you reform the college admissions process if you were the the magical educations are yeah, I know. Um, it's. I I will tell you a bunch of things, and then I'll tell you why this is really not the the main issue. So, uh, limit the number of extracurriculars. That that's obviously the first thing. Um, don't provide any um, advantages for athletes for legacies. Um, maybe limit the number of APs you want to see. Uh, don't give any weight to any experience that's been enabled by parental wealth. Um, well, that's, that's a tricky thing to parse out. Yes, it is. And that's, and that is ultimately why I think 
while reform would be good, it's ultimately going to be able to go so far because anything you do can be gamed by wealthy parents and the private colleges want the wealthy parents. They want people who can pay full tuition. They want, they also want to produce wealthy alumni. So here's my, the real thing I want to do as educations are, I want to go back to the days of free, high quality, taxpayer funded public higher education. You're in California you hopefully know that the University of California system was free, completely free, until the early 1970s and didn't charge tuition until the early 1980s. Yes, but aware of that. Those were the days when it was taxpayer supported. I just I recently discovered that the University of Oregon in my state receives 5% of its funding, 5% from the state. Basic and and you know if it's University of Wisconsin Madison or UVA or Berkeley, the numbers may be in the teens, but they're they're not that far off. So basically, public education is being uh, forced to become private education, and I don't think that we're ever going to climb out of this problem, which is also the problem of student debt. Until, until we recommit ourselves, you know. The upper middle class and the upper class, the people who've been benefiting from the system, need need to need to have a really serious change of attitude and say, we rise and fall together. We need we can't leave all of this human talent on the sidelines by basically denying most kids in this country a, a real shot at a good college education simply on the basis of affordability. That's what I would do. Bill, I would love to have about three more 45-minute recording sessions with you. Uh, we're out of time. And so uh, I'd just like to give you one last chance to let anyone know about your book that is coming out now in paperback version and and anything else you'd like anyone to know. Uh, um, you know, I, I think what I, what I ultimately say is um, – you know, whatever, however long it might take the grown-ups to get their act together, individual young people can make their own choices within the system or outside of the system, as as you're an advocate for. Um, everyone is sort of operating from the position, you know, parents, teachers, professors, college administrators, everyone, nobody feels like they have any freedom to act. And the truth is that they do have very little freedom because, you know, they all have jobs and they all have to worry about what they're supposed to do and who they're supposed to please. The people with the most freedom are the students because they, they're, they, they're, they're still free to shape their own lives and make their own decisions and determine their own destinies. And that's why I wrote this book primarily for students. So um, I'd love for parents to read it, but I would especially love for 10th, 11th, 12th graders, people in college, people, you know, just out of college to read it. My guest today has been William DeResowitz. Will, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me on the This is the Real Education Podcast. This show is produced with the assistance of Zen Zenith, who also created the music. For more episodes, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.